You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hi, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Oh, Nick's getting so good at that little intro, isn't he? Oh, it's fun. Ah, oh, friends, you are yet again in for a treat on the Regent College podcast. Yes. Um, Nick and I had a conversation with Dr. Marion Taylor around uh, women interpretation of the scriptures. And it was a fascinating and beautiful and life-giving and yeah. just just great conversation. What mm-hmm. stood out to you, Nick? I I think the piece that there are so many women interpreters that I did not, I had no, I maybe knew seven or eight of them. Mm. Um, And so the fact that there were this many and I have never really heard of them really stands out to me. And I I just think that this is so helpful for myself as a man, but then also for women who maybe have felt silenced or have not had like mentors or people they could look up to Mm. and but they felt called to interpret scripture they felt called to preach or teach Mm. um and so i feel like this needs to be i don't know given a megaphone Mm -hmm. for people just to know like no there are women interpreters like and there have been for centuries yes Mm -hmm. yes and so having uh dr taylor on was just phenomenal to be able to hear her wealth of knowledge Mm -hmm. like how much she just started picking out name dropping and so many different names and individuals who have interpreted the scripture um and so it's just yeah really refreshing and enlightening and just so thankful for dr taylor yeah, so we, we had her come, she was teaching here over at Regent in the spring in spring school. But mm-hmm. if you haven't come across Dr. Taylor before, she's a professor of Old Testament at Wycliffe College, which is at the University of Toronto here in Canada. And her research interests, I mean, naturally, include um, the reclaiming of the interpretive work of women throughout history. And so she's the author of a book called The Handbook of Women Biblical Interpreters, a historical and biographical guide. She's currently working... Uh, on a book alongside Joy Schroeder that will be released this spring called Voices Long Silenced, Women Biblical Interpreters Throughout the Centuries. So, friends, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Marion Taylor. Enjoy. Marion, welcome to the Regent College Podcast. Oh, thank you. We're so looking forward to having this conversation. I know Nick's been Nick's been telling me how great this is going to be, and then as I'm, you know, thinking about it, I'm feeling more and more excited about it. So we're excited to have you. Um, tell us why don't we sometimes usually try and start with a bit of a personal question. Just tell us tell us how did you begin this journey of sort of ex- yeah your your journey of exploring women interpreters of the Bible. Tell us a little bit about your your, your journey and your story around that. Okay, I'm happy to do that. So I was trained as an Old Testament scholar, kind of a classic training. Um, I started as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, and I specialized in the history of interpretation and wrote my dissertation on, a, you know, on the study of Old Testament at Princeton from 1812 to 1929, which, of course, there are no women in that history. <laughs> right. <laughs> the only story I ever found about women was uh, Archibald wrote a letter, hints to young men on finding a wife. <laughs> and it was right. like, find a woman who would do everything so you could do <laughs> ministry, right? So that was the only thing I learned about women in the 
from the old Princetonians. Um, so then I came back to Toronto, where I'm from, and was teaching at Wycliffe College. And one of the courses I taught was on the history of the rise of criticism in the 19th century and the church's responses. And it was in that class that one of my students said, could I do a paper on a woman interpreter of scripture from that period? And I thought, I don't know any. Right. And that question just drove me nuts. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> because I thought there have to be women who interpret scripture, right? There have to be women from the past who have, um, that we have their writings of. And I didn't know any. And I guess looking back, I was very shocked that I hadn't even asked that question, mm. right? In all my training at Yale and at, and in Toronto, I never encountered women interpreters of the Bible at all. Wow. But it didn't trouble you until the student asked. It didn't trouble me at all. Yeah. No, not at all. And, mm. um, you know, yeah. I'm not, I don't even know why, but I mean, yeah, yeah. it was because I was taught the history right. of how we study the Bible. And it was just the history of how men have studied the Bible. Mm. Right. So we read mm -hmm. the great books of the great men and I, you know, taught history of interpretation and we did the great men. Um, and so I started to look for women interpreters and we started finding them. And one of my, um, my graduate assistants was an engineer by training, and uh, she went to the British Library website, and she thought, what if we typed in Mrs. as author and Bible as subject, and oh. then we started getting hits? Because we don't, how do you find a book by a woman if you don't know her name and you don't know nice. the name of the book, right? It's hard to do. So we, then we typed in every first name, Victorian name that we knew. Mary, Elizabeth, Victoria, you know, <laughs> and, and then as the author, and then Bible as the subject, and we would go through year by year, 1800, 1801, going through all the names of books, right? And we started finding women. And once we started to find some, they would often reference others. Right. Mm. And then we have, you know, a dozen, and we have 50, then we have hundreds. Mm. And then... Um, then I did find books written about women interpreters, right? And there was a Can another Canadian woman, Pat Demers in Edmonton, who'd written a book on women interpreters. Mm. And I thought, oh, she's already done the job. And then I read <laughs> the book and I thought, no, she's just beginning the job. Mm. Right. So, um, and then I realized historians are doing this work and people in English lit and French literature. So people are looking for women writers and a lot of work had been done in any, in all the other fields, except theology and Bible really were way. Mm. Uh, wow. People have never, there aren't a lot of women in the field. And yeah. so they're not asking those questions. Yeah. Yeah. So then we, then we started so the first book was going to be on women interpreters of the Bible. But then we found so many of them. Um, my colleague Heather Weir and I decided to publish this book on women interpreting the women in Genesis. And we had over 50 women writing on the women in Genesis alone mm. in the 19th century. Wow. So you, that's the beginning. And now if we were doing it today, we'd probably have way more because mm -hmm. many more books have been scanned now been 20 years ago or 10 years ago mm -hmm. more women's names are coming to the fore 
Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it. And then I got so excited by what I was finding. And I, you know, I remember the day I went to Robert's library here in Toronto and I knew there was a book, a Hebrew grammar, a, a grammar of the Hebrew Psalter written by a woman. And I thought, got to be kidding. Yeah. Um, so, but there it was on the shelf. And I thought a woman wrote a grammatical analysis of the Psalter in the mid 1900s. Wow. No, 1800, yeah. 19th century, right? And I thought, how did um, her name is Gresswell? Unbelievable. Yeah. And then I found commentaries, commentaries on the Bible, right? And I thought, who knew women wrote commentaries on the Bible? Yeah. So Sarah Trimmer wrote the commentary on the whole Bible in 1805. Wow. Mary Cornwallis wrote four volume commentary, four volumes, thousands of pages in 1817. And a woman who publishes GB, she wrote a commentary on every New Testament book. And they're beautiful. Yeah. Uh, they, she includes exegesis, application, and a prayer on each chapter. Wow. Yeah, I was like, even even our reactions to this, you know, so you've been doing this work for however many years it is now. Yeah. And I'm still like, wow. I know. You know, it's like, what in the world? But it, but it, yeah, this is, this is what you're talking about. It's like, how did, like, who knew? And nobody knew, right? Yeah. And then I was working on Christina Rossetti, who people know her poetry, right? But they didn't, they don't know. She wrote two commentaries, one on Revelation and one on the Ten Commandments. Mm. And when I was doing work on her, I found a doctoral thesis written on her that led him to study to the British Library. And he found 45 other commentaries on women, by women, on Revelation between 1845 and 1900. I thought, how could... I think it's 30, not 45, 30 commentaries by women between 1845 and 1900 on the book of Revelation. And you think, why? Why are women drawn to the book of Revelation? And Rossetti, at least, said, you know, in the new heaven and the new earth, then women will have equality. Wow. Uh, Wow. So some some women wrote under their initials, like this Grisilla Boddington poet. GB. Some mm-hmm. wrote under another pseudonymous name. Mm-hmm. Is anonymous a woman? Somebody asked me that. Do I consider anonymous a woman? And I would say no, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Because men published anonymously too. But mm-hmm. so the women we are finding, we're looking for named women and not, right. not. But you can sometimes tell in an anonymous book if it's written by a woman or not, by the tone, allusions, things like right. that. Right. But yeah. So we. It's very exciting. And then as you go back in history, I mean, there have um, so early on, uh, there are references to women uh, by the men, right? Uh, Like Paul, uh, Jerome mentions the women that he's working with in Bethlehem who are helping him translate. Mm. So these are really early women. Yeah. Um, And then we've got these unusual Forms of biblical interpretation where they women take they're called kentos or centos in Latin mm. and take lines from Virgil and Homer and they repurpose them lines and half lines and tell the biblical story using Virgil and that's and, and they're very popular. Mm. Yeah. So women mm. did that as a way to educate their children. They didn't want their children reading some of the racy things in Virgil and Homer. Mm. <laughs> 
So <laughs> instead, they took half lines and retold the story. So, yeah. you know, oh, man. it, it kind of works. Like when yeah. my students read the stories and, and, you know, Eve comes across as a bit of a different character because of the women, <laughs> because of the sources he's using. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Works, they kind of get the story. So you have early women, and then, you know, we've known about women in the medieval period because Catholic women who were celibate and dedicated their lives to the church, they were educated and they had access to theological education, mm-hmm. unlike Protestant women later. And they wrote some very sophisticated pieces of spiritual reflection, but also biblical interpretation. Yeah. I had a woman in my class early on and she was a medievalist and she said, there is lots of interpretation on these women sort of as theologians and pastoral theologians, but very, nobody's looking at their biblical interpretation, mm. but now they are. And so like Hildegard, I mean, she's got exegesis, right? In, in our course, maybe Nick, you'll remember, we read two sermons of hers. One was a literal sense sermon, a, a a homily she preached on um, the nativity story. And then we read a spiritualizing allegory of the same text. It was Mm. fascinating. So you have a woman preaching and teaching and Pope consulting with popes and consulting with all these men and and having positions of power in the medieval period. And we've forgotten that. And I think Beth Barr in her recent book on the making of biblical womanhood like she's a medievalist and that's mm-hmm. where the penny dropped for her saying, wait a minute, women throughout history have not been silenced. Right. Yeah. And where they did everything. They, mm. preached, they were evangelists. They did pastoral care. And uh, so you can't just say through for 20 centuries, we know women haven't, the church has always followed Paul and silencing all women for all time in every situation. And she says, that's actually not right. No. Yeah. So this is important for me. It's important new data, right? Mm -hmm. So it's data that shows that women who are given the opportunities in education uh, and and have a sense of call have done all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Marion, I I feel like you're uh, uh, you like have a, a hat on with a light and you're mining for just gold that's uh, kind of kind of buried. And so, I mean, I counted over 180 women interpreters in your book, and I, I only, I've only heard about seven or eight of them. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Like, why have these voices, these women interpreters been hidden or just not known about? And not seen as an authority sort mm-hmm. of on scripture as well. Right. Yeah. Well... There are many there are many ways to answer that question, right? Um, many women had, and and the exception are Catholic women in the monastic tradition, because those women had their writings passed on, and they mentored other women within the community. So we don't, you know, there is that's a different kind of group. But Protestant women, certainly after the Reformation and early in the early church, their writings were not passed on as um, and, and so they didn't become part of the great books tradition, right? Mm. So even somebody like Sarah Trimmer, whose uh, books, she's a six-volume series for children called Sacred History. 
there were it was 175,000 copies sold and it was on the list for the SPCK the you know which is a publisher that was endorsed by Anglican bishops for over 70 years right mm-hmm. so she had she had authority she had power even after her death right yeah. so we have women like that that did have that um there you you know we do hear about them we hear about Susanna Wesley, right? But she's called the mother of Wesley, you know, of Charles. Right. But, yeah. she, but she is more than that, right? Mm. As we have a book, <coughs> excuse me, we have a book of Susanna Wesley's writings. And so many of her writings were burnt in the several fires that family had, and we would have had so much more. So some women's writings were lost, some were burnt. Some women were burnt, Um, you know, and, and men don't, the men who didn't think women should be speaking and preaching and writing theology because they didn't have a formal education were not interested in passing those Mm. writings on. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the issue in part. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a series of very sad stories in all this because the second great awakening in the, in the United States that, you know, spread to Britain and uh, like converted lots of women and lots of women were evangelists and involved in, in, in this great, exciting revival movement. Uh, And there were a number of men who said at that point, women need a theological education so we can train them to train others and to be missionaries and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. So Gordon College and Moody College and a number of other American Bible colleges trained women. In, and at Moody, they had women in their pastoral classes, including their preaching classes, right? So turn the clock forward into the 20th century. And there is a major pushback against women in the 20th century. And they capped the number of women at Gordon to one third. They refused entry of women into preaching classes at Moody, even though women had taught those classes and women had had got prizes for being the best preachers, right? And in a later history of Moody, they said, we've never had women in those classes. And that's oh. not true. They'd forgotten no. their own history. Oh, well, but so what was the, what caused that pushback? Like what was it, what happened that was going on either in the church or in, in interpretation? Society mm. that, in America, that was the era of the sexual revolution, yeah. flappers, right? right? Oh. And the church is like, whoa, this is not good. The mm. Victorian period where they had what's called the cult of domesticity when women were to be pious, pure, submissive, and domestic, that looked really good, right? So you shut down the women and say, women's place is in the home. They are to be mothers, right? And teach their children and the men are to work. So they Mm. they shut down jobs for women. Um, The Quakers had educated a lot of women. There were women professors at the women's colleges. Mm. And even then they they discouraged women. And then and the big universities, like in England, they didn't allow women into the, the, you know, to study theology. Mm. And there's stories of American women who went over to do graduate work and and their teachers would say, you can come to my class, but there can be no written record of you getting a grade here, right? So there's this major pushback. And I found 
Well, one of my students did a paper on Jesse Penn Lewis, who was a very famous Welsh revivalist. And she wrote on spiritual warfare. Uh, and even, uh, well, she talks about how at the Keswick um, meetings, right, which were very evangelistic, she was one of the key preachers. And then the board of trustees said, well, we don't want you preaching anymore. And she said, she pushed back. She said, I'm not like, she would not be bullied by these men and said, mm -hmm. she said, I am called to preach and my preaching is effective. I will continue to preach. Mm -hmm. So there are women like her who say, no, like I am. Um, but what it was so interesting there, one of her books uh, that continued to be published after her death has a disclaimer on it. And I've never seen a book with a disclaimer, but it says, uh, we, the publishers, uh, do not uh, think women should be speaking, teaching, you know, or writing books like this, but she is dead. So, uh, so <laughs> she's not exercising any authority over you. So if you want to read this book, that's fine. <laughs> Right. Disclaimer was not taken off the book till 1963. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, so, man. So this pushback, yeah. you know, I mean, the Southern Baptists did it in the 1980s when they fired all the women who were teaching at their theological colleges and, mm. you know, and uh, and and men who thought that women should be able to do that. So there yeah. is pushback. Uh, yeah. And and I those stories are frightening because anytime women are accepted and and allowed to exercise the gifts they they have in terms of teaching and preaching and speaking, uh, there are people who say, "Oh, but what about Paul?" Right? And mm. they say, "Sorry, uh, you can't do this anymore." Yeah. Well, then that makes me wonder. So. Do we think, do you think that, that the role of women in the church would be different or may have been interpreted differently uh, if women interpreters were more prominent in our kind of, in our exegesis and in our hermeneutics and understanding? Well, I, I think what, what would be different is that we would acknowledge that there are other ways of interpreting those difficult texts mm. and women figured that out a long time ago. Yeah. So in 1700, Mary Astle, an English, a brilliant English woman, she had Paul figured out and said, Paul is writing okay to a particular situation. Those particular si mm -hmm. women in Corinth were noisy, disruptive, and he was saying, you need to be quiet here. Because mm -hmm. we have Romans 16, where women like Phoebe is a deacon. We have yeah. Aquila and Priscilla. We have Paul having a team of women. We know Paul had women working with him who were teaching. We know how Jesus treated women. Mm -hmm. right? so, you know, Mary and Martha's story. Martha, Mary's at Jesus' feet, learning from the rabbi, right? Mm -hmm. And Jesus is always encouraging women in ministry. Got the story of the woman of Samaria, right? So going out and preaching. So women have always uh, um, been attuned to those stories and knew that they too had those similar callings, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they had different ways of reading scripture. They, they read different parts of scripture as empowering them. They read the Old Testament. And one of my favorite 19th century interpreters, Harriet Livermore, uh, wrote in 1823, she, she felt called to preach. 
And she wrote a book justifying women's preaching in 1823. And you could read it today as a contemporary book because the arguments she uses are the same you would use today, right? Mm. And she says, where in the Old Testament does it say women must keep silent? So she does a biblical theology starting in Genesis showing that there are women, women don't keep silent in the Old Testament. In fact, women speak, mm. you have Huldah, you have Miriam the prophetess, you have the daughters of Zelophehad, you've got all kinds of women who are leaders, Deborah. Um, mm. and, and, and she says, well, you know, um, God does call women and he does empower women to speak and preach and prophesy. So those traditions of women saying, no, no, the Bible doesn't say we all have to keep silent or none of us can teach. There are other parts of the Bible that if you acknowledge them as also important, you would see that there's not just one, you know, some, however many verses, four or five, six verses that would suggest that could be used to justify women's silencing and submission. There are a lot of other themes and uh, in the, in the scripture, mm. including Galatians three, that in Christ there's neither male nor female. Right? Mm-hmm. So, Amanda Bankhausen's um, book, The Gospel According to Eve, mm-hmm. has taken women's interpretations and shown throughout history how women had alternative readings of Eve. Like who said, really, do we blame all women it, because of Eve's sin? Mm. Does that mean all women are you know, sinful and not to be trusted and not worthy of education. Like mm. all, so how Genesis one to three has been used to shape women's lives in Western culture is un- unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her, I think her book is brilliant in showing that. So she shows that the value of women, recovering women interpreters in providing alternate readings of key texts that have been used to you know, really suppress women should be rethought, right? Mm. We need to rethink all this. So yeah. I think um, I think as more people incorporate some of these things into their work, and if we start to include women in our courses on every syllabi, there should be women and global voices, I think. Yep. Um, just to say, there's not one privileged voice here. No. Right. And goodness, most, you know, how many of our students are female? And so when women read works of women, all of a sudden they say, oh, I didn't know I was the first woman. Mm-hmm. I had a woman in my class who said, I thought I was the first woman to do this job as pastor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, actually, you're not. Yeah, yeah. You, you know? are special, but not that special. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and even for me, like, you know, I was the first woman uh, at Wycliffe to be a professor. And I thought, so I didn't have mentors, right? But yeah. I've got thousands of dead mentors, right? Women, yeah. women who were professors in the 19th century, right? Professors of Old Testament who were publishing in journals, who were, you know, you think, well, there, I didn't know any of these women. Mm-hmm. So it changes, it changes your you know, you think you think you're an orphan. You're no longer right. orphan. Yeah. Right? Right. We're not orphans. Yeah. yeah, it's the power of representation, isn't it? Like that. So it's like there, there is, yeah, there's someone there that sounds like me or looks like me or, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That's just the power that that actually has to then allow those voices 
they, like they should be allowed to speak anyway, but for whatever that reason, they've been silenced, and it just kind of it, yeah, just ele- like yeah. Space. And the same thing happens when we talk about uh, African American preachers, right? Yep. These mm-hmm. women were courageous; they were brilliant preachers, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, social justice act- activists. So, for a young black woman called to ministry, when she learns about these four mm-hmm. mothers, it actually changes the whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. and kind of a simple question, but I'm just curious if you have thoughts on it. Do you? It. Who would you say? Is the was the first woman interpreter of the mm. Bible? I'm just curious. Oh, well, I thought. I mean, would Eve be the first one? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, or, or Hulda, right? She was looked upon to interpret the words mm-hmm. of uh, prophecy. Um, we often thought uh, maybe you would say Mary was. Mary pondered those words in her mm-hmm. heart. Yeah. yeah. And recently, I was reading how. Well, it's actually in Beth Barr's book, how Phoebe, uh, maybe it's possible that she carried the letter of Romans to Rome and read it yeah. maybe five times out loud and answered questions. And you think, mm-hmm. well, there you go. Yeah. Right? yeah. So there are early women interpreters. And, and we do know that in the early church, women had roles that were later um, kind of more circumscribed so yeah. we have women doing things when the when the church was in this when more in the private sphere but when the church moved to the public sphere and modeled itself after society then women's roles were 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 changed mm-hmm. right right it, it makes me wonder so you were saying earlier about you know there were some commentaries where there's where there's not there's not a name that put at the front, but you can sort of tell it's written by a woman. By but so it's like, how, what like do do women read the Bible differently to men? Like so, are you saying that that you know they'll obviously interpret the women characters differently and and those? But like, in what ways and is that like do they read it differently? Do we do we you and I read it differently to Nick? <laughs> I de- uh, it depends. <laughs> it, they they can and they can't. Right. right. So when <laughs> I was trained as an Old Testament scholar was i trained to read differently than the men or trained to read Mm. the same way i was trained to read the same way yeah yeah did i read through my experience as a woman absolutely not would that have been accepted no right Mm -hmm. but women um like women writing a commentary on the book of proverbs would be very interested in the proverb that said talks about physical sparing the rod and spoiling the child they're the mothers with their kids. So they would, they would bring in their own experience to comment on that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I was just reading Sarah Trimmer's commentary on Proverbs 31. Right. Right. And she is writing to a female audience and saying to these women, poor, these poor uneducated English women saying, she go the woman in Proverbs goes out and buys a field, right? With her right. own money. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, in a classless society in England and with laws that don't allow women to own anything, this is a problem. Right? Mm-hmm. But she said, but it does talk about how this woman in Proverbs spins and and does flat. Like so she does work with her hands. So she said, Well, you can earn money for your children 
by doing spinning and embroidery, just like she did. Mm-hmm. So she is, uh, when, when the women are doing mother's meetings, which we figured out when you read them out loud, they're sermons. Women are preaching. Anglican women are preaching to women in the 19th century in the churches at, mm. at women's meetings, right? And they're writing down their addresses. And if you read those, they use the same rhetoric as a, as a, a male preacher. Mm. Would you say, would you, that makes me wonder, does it, um, would you say that, that those women were uh, interpreting really for women though, like so, because that's the other thing is like, oh, women can teach, but they can teach just to women. So, what in your understanding historically have have those those sort of eighteenth, nineteenth century women that we're sort of getting excited about? <laughs> like, are they were they? Do you think preaching and interpreting just with women in mind, or well, some were, mixed? some yeah. were because right. as women women were confined to the the private sphere, right? Right. And they were teaching their own children. And then they thought, oh, we need to teach the poor children and have the Sunday school movement. So they moved out. And then they started working like Josephine Butler with prostitutes, right? Yeah. Teaching them. And then they mm-hmm. moved out. But then other women are like trimmers. Commentary is not just for women. It's for women and men. And certainly Cornwallis was focusing on teaching her grandson, Right. And so with that in mind, you can tell she is a grandmother is warning him about, you know, beware of those women, the, the wicked women like those in Proverbs, because she's a grandmother worried about the chastity of her grandson. <laughs> so, so you can tell sometimes yeah. in, in, um, in the commentary that, um, in, in that series that G.B. Grisilla Boddington wrote, you can't tell she's a woman. It's a devotional commentary. It's for everybody. And mm-hmm. Elizabeth Rundle Charles, who wrote all these wonderful devotional commentaries, you can't tell she's a woman. And she's not writing for women in particular. Mm-hmm. She does write a book for women of India, but normally she doesn't do that, right? Mm-hmm. So do women read differently? They can, especially when they're they're interested in writing for a female audience, but many are not doing that. And certainly the women in the early period, in the time of the early Reformation, where you have Marie Dantier, right, who had this interchange with Calvin. And Calvin says, you know, she's the little woman preaching in every bar and at every street corner, right? Um, And she criticizes Calvin for wearing these long black gowns, right? She's not preaching to women. She's preaching the gospel publicly, right? Mm. And um, this, I always, this Argula von Grumbach, um, I mean, she, she becomes a polemical figure when a young male student who becomes a Protestant is harassed and, and threatened and has to renounce his faith. And, and she stands up for him and writes to the university a letter that's filled with biblical interpretation. So she she has the guts as a woman to take on the university, for goodness sake. Right. So and she and she does, right? So mm-hmm. these women are not, these are these early women interpreters who feel with the freedom of the gospel that they are called to in, you know, they they believe in the priesthood of all believers. And I is it's what it's interesting because we don't talk about the priesthood of all believers as something that a doctrine that would empower women too, right? But they, right. these early women felt that 
doctrine was really important in in the freedom they have yeah. in the gospel to to preach to mm-hmm. teach you know and mm-hmm. they did and they did yeah in yeah. a wonderful way and then but then as you know denominations were formed and then they said well women should be mothers and wives and you know they closed the monasteries which is the one place women could Mm. get higher education and Mm. i mean there's a big debate among historians as to whether the reformation is good for women Mm. because closed off that avenue for single women Mm -hmm. right so you put singleness was no longer like virginity was such a high value in the catholic tradition right but in the protestant tradition where did single women fit right yeah Uh, and where did women have the opportunity then to become theologian, you know, to study? When mm. you read about what women were doing in these monasteries, they were translating, they were writing, they were writing histories, they were reflecting theologically. That So that disappears for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just, this is all so interesting because it makes me reflect on my own studies and on my own preparation when when exegeting scripture, when interpreting scripture, and the the references and the authorities that I refer to and that predominantly we refer to. And it it just makes me wonder, have we missed have we missed pieces in scripture because we haven't allowed voices from women to come forward and help us teach us scripture, mm. help interpret scripture. And I'm just wondering you know, we refer to uh, Calvin or Karl Barth or Luther, or all these great theologians, and and as almost like the canon of interpreters for Scripture. Mm. And I've heard you talk about this, but I just wonder if you have thoughts on: Are there uh, women interpreters who you feel should be a part in the canon of how we interpret Scripture, of who we refer to as as an authority? Mm. Oh, I, I think there should be. And I certainly think in a course on the Reformation, you should be reading some of the great women like Marie Tier mm. and Argula von Grimbeck. I mean, their stuff is so exciting. And in, and I've been working on, a, uh, last summer I worked on Maria Stewart, a black abolitionist um, who, you know, in the 1830s um, became a, part of this group in Boston that was very vocal. Anyway, she did these public lectures and she was in, she embodied scripture. She was a figural reader of scripture mm. and in a way that's very timely. And she how she read the scripture is just so interesting. They call her the black Jeremiah. She loved Jeremiah and she but she would preach uh to the white audience, you know, and say um, we'll take the the story of Lazarus, right? That you white men, right, are are like in the in the you're she she blended the the story of the rich young ruler and also the story of Lazarus, right? And so she associated the white American Euro American population with the enemy, the bad guys, right? Mm. And African Americans are are the are the ones who've been victimized and oppressed. Mm-hmm. And so when she when she taught when she preaches this, she says, and God will, you know, when 
when this guy is in hell and thirsty and calls for water, God says, no, the, your black slave will not give you a drop of water, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's just so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And so she, and she reads the situation of um, the American blacks on onto the situation of Israel and Babylon and Egypt, right? Wow. And so, you know, Babylon and Egypt are the enemy and who are they but white oppressors who have, you know, taken advantage of them and so on. So mm. it's, it's very powerful preaching that I think could be used to teach, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach Jeremiah next year and I'm going to have them read her stuff on Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's very powerful. God. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt this wonderful conversation, but Claire Perini has something really important she'd like to share with you. Thanks, Nick. I do have something very important to say. Firstly, it's to say thank you to the number of people who listen to the podcast and they they like the podcast so much that they send us emails to let us know or little donations of cashola. Mm. So, um, so thank you for those who are who have been supporting the podcast. But if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been thinking, oh, I wonder how Nick gets paid. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut that that out. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've been listening to the podcast and you've appreciated some of the conversations that we've had, we would love you to to let Regent know by sending us an email or sending us a donation. And you can do that on the Regent College website if you go to rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-G-N-T dot net forward slash give. What a great... American, North American accent. Or like some sort of weird (laughs) hybrid accent. Yeah. Uh, Wonderful. And if you do give a donation, would you please tell them the podcast sent you? Thanks for listening and for your support. We hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. Marion, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever felt silenced as a woman in scholarship or in your own experience? Well, you know, not really. I, I, I have been, I've had a, um, I, I've been very supported as Mm. a woman at Mm. Wickham College and, you know, I have had, I have three kids. I, um, I would take them to meetings. They'd sit on the floor with their Lego. (laughs) I would breastfeed and, uh, you know, I was the register doing admissions I thought, heck, if somebody's going to be an Anglican priest and they're uncomfortable with the woman nursing, too bad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, and so I, you know, I um, so Wycliffe yeah. was a wonderful community uh, for for us, and and I I always felt appreciated and as a woman, and you know, I did get pushback once in a while from a former boss who would say, "There's too much on women in your courses, Marianne," and I thought, "There's well, too." Too little yeah. in the other courses, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. I said, well, there are a lot of women in Genesis, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I thought, if I don't, if I don't focus, raise these issues in class, then they won't be raised. Right. Yeah. They're not being raised in other classes. So, mm. no, I haven't. I've been encouraged. And my mm, mentors so have been men. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I'm a female professor at Yale, and she died early of cancer. But I had that one mentor, right? Mm-hmm. She, uh, Bonnie Kittle. She was married with kids, a wonderful, normal person. And she modeled for me, you can be 
you can be an academic and you can be a balanced person and mm. have a regular life. And, yeah. you know, she was wonderful. And yeah. so, um, so and no, I, I've not, but I have been, um, you know, I've been in, in, I haven't been in a complementarian church mm. um, as my main church, mm-hmm. but, but um because I, I and I couldn't be right. I, I can't. Mm. I can't do that. I, yeah. I just I get too upset. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. This has been so enriching and and wonderful. I I wonder from for many listeners if this has been almost a breath of fresh air, just to hear about not only all the the kind of hidden voices from our past, but also the present, such as yourself. I, I think you said that you were one of the first female professors at Wycliffe. Is that? Well, I was. You were the first female professor at Wycliffe. So kind of just even, mm-hmm. even yourself commending you for, um, yeah, kind of paving that ground. Obviously you said you had a mentor too, but I feel like you've, you, I know you've been mentors to other females and men too at your school and now maybe around the nation and hof- mm. hopefully the world. So, so thankful for you. Just curious, what what are you up to now and what's next for you in your research or what mm. do you have coming? Well, well um, thank you for asking that. I, I When we put together the handbook, uh, it was so evident that so many of the women wrote on Genesis and so many wrote on Paul, right? Right. So I'm an Old Testament professor, right? But I'm very interested in how women have interpreted Paul. And so I, that's my project. I'm currently working on a project, um, writing a book on how women have interpreted Paul from the time of the Reformation to the late 19th century, like till 2018, the end of the war or something, because um, then it gets too complicated and too many women, right? So right. In, but in that period, you have very, um, you have women stepping out and preaching and teaching and countering the traditional mm. church teachings. And, um, and then you have the stories of pushback, but then you have the arguments over and over and over again, women are saying the same thing. Like mm. Paul didn't mean all women in every situation, in every culture right. must keep silent. But they didn't have the benefit of knowing that seven or eight women had already said this, right? They right. didn't have the shoulders to stand on. So it's quite a compelling argument. So you see in the 1600s and 1650s, they all were saying the same thing because mm. women are reading the Bible. And, you know, so and that challenges the complementarian argument that Christian feminism uh, comes from secular feminism, right? Knee-jerk reaction to these right. women in the 16th century were not feminists, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't in that, you know, they were reading the Bible and their faith and the freedom they found in Christ and their sense of call. That's what pushed them to preach yeah. and teach and say, "I'm, I have to do this," right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about this book. I'm I'm learning so much about history and about these women, and I'm excited uh, to do the research. And mm. I really, it will it's going to be another conversation that we need to um, include women's voices on mm. Paul. 
Yes. I think there is like women have said. I mean, there are some women who say, no, Paul said we shouldn't preach and teach, so we won't. Yes. But they did anyway. Right? They, they preached with their pen. Right? They <laughs> taught with their pen, right? Yeah, so right. You say, I can't preach from the pulpit. Fine, I'll preach downstairs, right? I'll do it right. somewhere else, right? So yeah. women found ways to do what they were called to do, even when the men said they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm doing that. And my colleague, Catherine Sider Hamilton, is doing the part of the book from the early church to the 16th century. So uh, we're quite excited about that. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, and, and Marion, it kind of, it, I think the, the whole conversation has just reminded me, we sometimes we think we, you know, as 21st century Christians, we're picking up the Bible and we're going to try and interpret it. You know, we're going to use all the tools that we've got to interpret it. But we sometimes forget to look that, oh, no, there's been a lot of people interpreting this over right. a long period yeah. of time, you yeah. know, and so we need to be drawing on all of our tools for biblical interpretation from within the text and then from those who have been interpreting the, you know, the text over this period of time and then, you know, just the way that you're opening up, listening to women's voices who have been right. interpreting this same book. Like we're not coming to this fresh, people. Yep. Like there's a whole there's a whole history of, of people who have been trying to understand and trying to wrestle with what God's saying. Yeah. Uh, in no, that's right. And uh, yeah. John Thompson has this great book. I wish I had to, I'd written it. It's called Reading the Bible with the Dead, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you read the Bible with the dead, they have insights that we need, right? Yeah, they totally. see things that we are blind to. Mm-hmm. And same with global voices. They yep. You know, we have to listen to many. I mean, it's the cloud of witnesses, dead and present, that we need to to read in community Mm -hmm. to make less mistakes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that that is a mic drop moment to end. (laughs) Marion, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for thanks for um for keeping on bringing these voices to light for us and for yeah, helping us understand. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) It's great to be with you. That's great. Yeah, thank you for uh, Thanks, letting Sarah. me talk about my favorite women. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.